and welcome to episode 50 of the Classical Guitar Composers Podcast. As always, I am your host, Chris Hales. Glad to be bringing you another episode of the show that features original classical guitar pieces from around the globe sent in by listeners like you. Episode 50 seems like kind of a big deal. In a way it is, at the rate I put these things out. Uh, I should have made like some kind of special plan, uh, but what actually happened was I had some time come available and was like, oh, I better attempt to get a podcast. I wasn't sure if I was going to be getting one in this month or not. I've got a lot of plans for this month for myself, really for the foreseeable future. A lot of work I'm planning on doing to my house over the summer and what time is left, if any, I hope to spend much of that outdoors on the lakes and such that's not to say we won't be doing podcasts this summer it's only to say i gotta get it while i can i guess so no special plan for episode 50 we're not gonna make a big deal out of it there is something on the horizon though i might plunge back into the classical guitar world just a little bit through more than sitting in my bedroom playing my instrument. It's been a long time since I've gotten out to any kind of event. I just got an email the other day. There's a upcoming concert that intrigues me a bit. And it's Jason Vio, I think is how you say it. I'm not really sure. Complicated last name. We're going to go with Vio. I've seen Jason once. I have no idea what year it would have been, but... It was very good. It was a really good recital. It was at uh, some church up in Salt Lake City that had this really, you know, nice chapel that was um, had had those nice church acoustics. The thing about uh, guitar recitals in churches, or really any instrument, they're great in person. They make for terrible YouTube videos. There's a lot of people who <laughs> you can find recordings of like great guitar players playing in a church, and they just they're never recorded with the, the right equipment to capture the sound and it's like all you hear is uh, reverb and coughing <laughs> so something interesting about that recital was you know he had a program you know there's a the usual program when you walk in on a in a stack or whatever or somebody hands it to you and and I what I remember is he didn't follow the program whatsoever. (laughs) So I sat down, and it said he was going to play the Suite of Memories, the Merlin Suite, which he famously recorded. Now that is an interesting guitar suite. I've played through it many times. I've never really, like, worked it into my fingers. The problem, one problem being, I don't actually find it to be the most satisfying group of compositions when I'm reading through it it's okay but uh you know like I I wouldn't say it's a particularly difficult suite but it's difficult enough that you have to put some work into playing it and then I don't find it musically rewarding enough to stick with it so I've never really done it however I love to listen to Jason Vio's recording of it he brings something out in that piece that really 
demonstrates how a great player can turn a, a piece of music that you know is is uh, it's not that it's a bad piece of music but but can really bring it to life in a way that maybe is bigger than the piece actually is or i could be backwards in my thinking it's also possible that that piece is incredible and it just takes a great player to reveal that he actually it's interesting cuz he's not he's not like my all-time favorite player but he has he hits a few pieces like he's changed my mind about pieces before another one being at this recital he played the Bach suite in E minor of the four lute suites he played the one in E minor and that is the suite I chose to take on when I was uh in college and you know wanted to do a Bach suite so I'm I'm very familiar with that that entire suite uh, because you're dealing with it being a transcription you know there's different takes on it different uh, solutions to problems uh, but it's a wonderful suite and I always felt that the Sarah Bond was kind of weak compared to the rest of the suite I think it has a well it has the famous beret uh, the, you know if you don't know it by name, you've definitely heard the Bach Beret in E minor. If my guitar was sitting here, I would I would play you the opening notes, but it has that incredible uh, prelude. I think the prelude to that suite is my favorite movement. And then it it you know it finishes with a nice strong jig. Uh, the Courant's pretty good. The Alamon's pretty good. I didn't really care for the Cerebon too much. And then when Jason played it live, it was it was not his recording that did it for me, but it was sitting in that chapel, hearing him play that thing live, and I thought the Cerebond was beautiful. My takeaway from that was I need to play better because there's a lot of beauty to be brought out in pieces that I'm not recognizing at times. So there's a program... He didn't follow it, and, and what I remember was he played the box suite, uh, which may or may not have been on the program, I can't remember, but he did not play the Merlin suite, and I was disappointed, you know, because as I sat down, I was like, oh, he's the one guy I would want to see perform this piece, and so I was really looking forward to it. You know, and instead we got something else. I don't remember, I remember it was really good, but because I don't have a program to reference, I don't remember everything he played. I know he played the box suite, and he also played the Boccherini quintet that is the guitar and string quartet piece I've also played. Pretty fun piece to play. I think it it's a little monotonous, <laughs> but it is a cool piece. So he's coming back, and I think I'm going to go. I, I think I'm definitely going to go. The problem I might have is that I may not have anyone to go with. Usually my wife would go to something like that with me, but I don't think she's going to be available that night. There was a time in my life when that wouldn't have mattered. I'm going to go no matter what. Uh, I've reached a point now where I'm a little I'm a little less ambitious as far as <laughs> just you know, on a Friday night uh, deciding to drive up to the city and, and park and, you know, deal with all those things that you have to do to go to these concerts by myself. But I'll probably do it. 
I do wish it was somewhere similar to where I saw him before. One being I liked the venue, but also it being a much easier place to get to. Where they're doing these guitar concerts now is like right downtown. You know, it's a decent theater, but uh, much less pleasant to get to. It's where I saw the last recital I went to, which was, I'm pretty sure, Scott Tennant. And I know that that is like right when I had started my podcast, so that's how long it's been since I've been to a guitar recital. It'll be interesting to see if he follows his program this time. (laughs) Not that that matters. I mean, it only matters in a sense that I can't remember what he played. It's funny, I used to uh, really care a lot about set lists, not with classical music, but with like rock bands and stuff I'd go see. I had a notebook, and I I still have it, but uh, up to a certain point, it has like every concert that I'd been to, and I'd, I'd written down the set list, and I was kind of keeping this like concert journal in a way. And, you know, eventually kind of stopped doing that, but it, because now you can, you can just go on set list FM and you can pretty much find the set list, any concert you've ever been to or anyone you're curious about. But I used to be really into that. I used to, I used to care a lot about, I I used to have a more of a hobby out of it, I guess. I still, uh, take an interest in it. A lot of the bands that I used to go see back then you know, the set list was a big part of the intrigue, right? Like you would go, you know, the, the, the dead never played the same show twice. So every time you go to a dead show, you're always curious about what they'll play, right? Whereas, you know, bands like a band that I love so much, like Iron Maiden, you know, they, they set the set list for the entire tour, they have a whole stage show that goes with it. There's not a difference from one show to the next on any given tour, which their u- upcoming tour, I'm very intrigued by. I hope they bring it out to the U.S. Aside from that festival out in California they're booked for now, that's their only U.S. date. The tour they're planning features an old album and their latest album are going to be kind of spotlighted with a few other things mixed in. I'm really curious to see what that list is going to look like. Anyway, but they're they're one that, um, same show every night, big stage show. I love it. And then you have, uh, you know, there's there's bands. I've never seen the Rolling Stones, but I've looked at their, their shows. And what they kind of do, and Aerosmith I've seen does this a little bit too, is they have like a few kind of running set lists in their... There's like parts of this show that uh, are a constant on a tour, you know, whether it be the opener and the closer, you know, maybe they, they typically open like the first five songs are always the same, but then there's like this section in the middle where they're kind of rotating some stuff. I think if you're going to do a fixed set list, I like that format better. I'd like to go um, not knowing you know, to, like like with it with, uh, not being so predictable. I guess it just kind of depends on what type of concert you're putting on. Very different from the classical world, really. Uh, <laughs> we use a different term, I guess. We, it's, a, it's a program. It's not a set list. It's a, it's a program. What pieces are you programming? 
I want to interrupt the show for just one moment to tell you about Libsyn. If you've got a great idea for a podcast but don't know where to start, I highly recommend Libsyn as your podcast host. They've got all the resources you need to get started. It's an absolute great service for podcasting. I thought they were great when I started with them, but they've continually improved their service and their product. So if you'd like to start podcasting, go to Libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N.com. Sign up and make sure you use the promo code T, that's T-E-A, to get up to three months free podcasting with Libsyn. There's also a big uh, debate going on in the harder in the hard rock world over pre-recorded tracks and the merits of them, and you know, one camp being bands should play live exclusively uh, with no pre-recorded tracks whatsoever. That'd be the camp I'd fall into. <laughs> uh, but uh, there's many that use them. Uh, a lot of younger bands use them like crazy, but then some older bands too. Bands I love, bands I would go see, uh, but they'll they'll record some background vocals, and you know this or that. That a band I love, Aerosmith, is guilty of that. I don't know to what extent they've used pre-records. I know they do some background vocals. I mean, I know they came in like like. They did some of it here in Utah, because there was a, a trumpet player who was telling me, you know, he had, he had been working with Steven Tyler, <laughs> which he took the opportunity to bring up every time we saw him. But, uh, you know, I, I'd assume they were recording things for stuff like from Permanent Vacation, like Dude Looks Like a Lady, Ragdoll, those, those Aerosmith songs that uh, have brass sections, you know. To me, I'd rather just hear the ba- hear it without the brass section. Personally, I'd, I'd. It's not to say that they're not up there playing their instruments. I mean, they are. They're playing, but they're also following. You know, if you do that, you're now locked into a click track, and I mean, it's just a whole thing. Yeah, I understand why they do it, trying to get a bigger sound. It's not that they can't play without it, but I think what it brings to a show is completely overshadowed by what's lost when you do click tracks. You know, a lot of uh, just that live magic is is not there. That's why I was always more drawn to bands like The Grateful Dead, even though I really like hard rock. It's often not as good live. You know, you want to go to the other extreme. Like I feel like there's no more energetic music on stage than live bluegrass. To me, that's as as good as a show gets. And I don't know that there's a whole lot of pre-recorded stuff going on in there. Anyway, I got a little sidetracked there. Can you imagine if uh, classical music started using (laughs) pre-records? I mean, it's weird. As a guy who makes pre-recorded tracks for a living, (laughs) and as a hobby, (laughs) it might be a little strange to say, but I, I don't make pre-recorded tracks for bands. <laughs> it's for different purposes. But I do, as a hobby, make pre-recorded tracks for classical music. And I create those as uh, rehearsal things, but I'm not against someone taking them 
and using them. But that, um, see, that wouldn't bother me too much. To, okay, so for example, let's say you've got, let's say you're wanting to play a Karuli guitar concerto, and you would like to play in front of an orchestra, or you'd like to program this, <laughs> you'd like to program the piece at your recital, and you just don't have an orchestra at your disposal. Would it be weird for someone to use a background track in that situation? I mean, if it's a good background track, I think I'd rather see that than a piano accompanist. Although, well, I mean, it would sound better. But again, if, if the player has a good rapport with that piano accompanist, that'd probably be the better way to go. Anyway, I'm not against the idea in that type of situation, but imagine if, like, you know, you go see your, like, local symphony, okay? And let's say they've got, you know, a decent-sized orchestra, but they, they want to play a big Mahler piece, and they don't want to hire more musicians, so they use, like, a a supplemental track. <laughs> I wonder if that's coming. I really do. In fact, I'll be shocked if it's not coming. Uh, but it would make me sad to see it. But if, it's, if it is coming, I'd like to be the guy who makes those tracks. <laughs> Maybe I better start getting on that before someone else does. Maybe it's already happening, I don't even know. I mean, that's possible. I haven't been to a symphony in a very long time. Much longer than um, my most recent guitar recital. Uh, I don't even remember what the last symphony would have been. It was probably, I went to go see Beethoven's Ninth. I don't know, 10 years ago? No, longer ago than that. Probably like 12 years ago. It's funny, there was a, a piece before that. It was a minimalism piece by John Adams. The composer, not the second president of the United States. And I don't know if you out there listening are familiar with minimalism uh, in the world of orchestral music and classical music minimalism is a style where it has very monotonous things happening and little by little one thing will change and it'll go on and on and on and then this other little element will change some rhythmic pattern or you know all of a sudden a uh, a new melody is entered, and if if there is even melodies in this music, by the time you get to the end of the twenty-minute saga, uh, it's not the same piece as it began with. But you're not really sure how you got there. I think that's is that that's how I would sum up the overall effect of minimalism. I can't stand it. It's not too like John Cage. Uh, you know, noise music level of uh, annoyance for me, but but it it I would say it has more musical validity to it than some of the stuff I've criticized. However, probably grates on my nerves much worse. <laughs> it might be like the last type of classical music I would want to listen to. I almost think I'd listen I'd listen to atonal noise over it. I don't I don't care for minimalism uh, stuff by like Philip Glass, John Adams. <laughs> so this guy at that symphony, uh 
you know, this old guy next to me in a tux. Uh, I did go to that one by myself, by the way. <laughs> so I'm sitting there by myself and, uh, you know, this, this guy next to me, he's, he's, he's a traditionalist, right? He's, he's dressed up in a, maybe it wasn't a tux, but like a suit, you know, for the, for the symphony. And he had clearly come to see Beethoven, <laughs> like myself. And so after 20 minutes of this, this thing we listened to, uh, oh, that piece, I guess I need to tell you this little bit of context so you will find this funny. That piece is actually a very, uh, you know, serious piece that was dedicated to the victims of the 9-11 attacks in 2001. So message of the music aside, it's just not a very pleasant piece to listen to in my opinion. And, but because of the uh, nature of uh, the artistic expression in this, it's requested that you don't applaud at the end. You're supposed to contemplate, I guess. And so it ends and it's silent and the guy next to me just leans over and he says, well, I'll be happy to not applaud that. <laughs> I don't, I don't remember why I was talking about minimalism, but that's what I think of every time I, I hear minimalism now was the gentleman next to me did not approve a type of minimalism. I like, I, I, I don't know that it's considered this, but it's, I, I call it like, it's what I would call like a non-classical music version of minimalism is music by the guy Mike Oldfield who wrote uh, Tubular Bells, which became the theme to The Exorcist. Mike Oldfield writes music that is essentially minimalism. He, he writes kind of a, you know, it'll be music that is very repetitive, but evolves and, you know, his pieces are often quite long. You get to the end, and it's very different from where you began, but it's a much more interesting journey. I love his music. I find it very... Well, it, there's lots of different moods it brings on, depending on which one you listen to, but uh, very cool. Very cool stuff. That's what I feel like min minimalism ought to be. Maybe it's, though, more to do with the fact that I like guitars, and that's what he plays... <laughs> I love classical music, I love the orchestra, but at heart, I love guitars. I love electric guitars, and of course, nylon guitars. So, back to nylon guitars. How about some music? Things have been a little slow. Uh, I don't have a submission for this month. So if you got a piece, uh, you know, you want to get submitted to the show, now's a good time uh, to not have a long waiting list. Sometimes... Sometimes the wait list is months out, sometimes there isn't one. And rather than uh, reach back into the vault, I'm going to uh, feature some music that I've not featured on this show yet, but by a guy who's been featured several times. So, as usual, maybe pause the podcast, get yourself a nice cold glass of iced tea, nice place to sit and let's hear some music together so I have not heard these 
quite a while ago I got a whole bunch of pieces from a composer named Etienne Delavo, who comes from Australia. Etienne's a very prolific composer, and you can find him on previous episodes several times. And so, rather than like, you know, he, he gave me enough music that uh, I decided I would like spread it out. So, out of everything I have, I think this is the only thing I have left that we haven't featured by Etienne. And it's a three-movement work called Estudio Ponderoso. I don't have any more context to give you than that, but you should check out ATN. He's got a YouTube page. He's he's a great player and an awesome composer. I've always really enjoyed the stuff he's sent in, and so I'm happy to be featuring him again today. And it seems a it seems a good choice to me for episode number fifty. So, without further ado, here is a Studio Ponderoso by ATN Delavo. <laughs> Thank you. 
All right, there it is. We've just heard Estudio Ponderoso by Etienne Delaveau. Thank you, Etienne. Just to heart back to what I was talking about earlier, according to Wikipedia, minimal music is a form of art music or other compositional practice that employs limited or minimal musical materials. Prominent features of minimalist music include repetitive patterns or pulses, steady drones, consonant harmony, and reiteration of musical phrases or smaller units. <laughs> it may include features such as phase shifting, resulting in what is termed phase music, or, or process techniques that follow strict rules, usually described as process music. The approach is marked by a non-narrative, non-teleological, and non-representational approach, and calls it attention to the activity of listening by focusing on the internal processes of the music. Wow, that is a wordy explanation. I also uh, just wanted to say, I'm not actually sure that that was by John Adams, the piece that uh, my friend was happy to not clap for. It might have been Steve Reich. It, I don't know. I don't know. So if I got that wrong and you noticed and are upset... I'm sorry, okay? I just don't care enough about that type of music to do the research required to get everything right. Anyway, okay. This podcast began. I talked repetitively. It meandered. And here we are at the end in a different place from where we began somehow. I'm not really sure what changed along the way. Just little things at a time. Little topics. Don't really recall what we began with, but... Much like a, this was, this was sort of a minimalist episode, I guess. Hey, if you'd like to support the show, and you are a guitar player, a great way to do so is to buy yourself some sheet music. Go to classicalguitarcomposers.com, click on the link, sheet music, and you can find some music written by me. If you want to play something new, something you haven't heard before, or if you've been listening to the show, you probably have heard before, it's a great way to support the show. Another great way to support the show is to just listen. So I want to thank you all for listening. I appreciate you very much. And until next time, keep on plucking.